Well, good morning, and again, I want to welcome you to Warden. <clears throat> Whether you're joining us in person or online, we're so glad that you chose to be with us today. As Orlando, Pastor Orlando just said, today I'm starting a new series leading up to Easter called, called The Way to Victory. This is a three-part series, and we follow Jesus to three different places, Bethany, Gethsemane, and ultimately Golgotha. His journey seems tragic, especially to his disciples who expected him to defeat Israel's political enemies and rule victoriously like King David did. But Jesus teaches them and us that the way to victory is not always what we would expect. The way to victory is through the cross. So today we follow Jesus to Bethany. Now Bethany is a village on the Mount of Olives, less than two miles east of Jerusalem. It was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. It was where he was regularly welcomed at supper as one of the family. There's evidence that for many pilgrims from Galilee who were traveling to Jerusalem, Bethany provided rest and lodging near the end of their journey. It was a place from which they could venture into Jerusalem itself each day, but return to Bethany in the evening to be among family and friends. We know from scripture that Jesus stayed in Bethany during his final days in Jerusalem and that the Palm Sunday procession started out from there. Even after Jesus was raised from the dead, according to Luke 24:36, he appeared to his followers and he then led them on the road to Bethany. And it was somewhere on the road where he blessed his followers and he, then he rose up into heaven. So as you can see, Bethany was a very special place for Jesus. Today, the village is, village is named Al-Azria, which is Arabic for Lazarus's place. I believe there's something very special about the fact that Jesus's last days, his love and his sacrifice be associated with Bethany. Jesus came to change the world. He came to give us victory. And that was the message of Bethany, Lazarus's place, 2,000 years ago. And I believe it's also the message for today. The week approaching Jesus' death and resurrection is probably one of the most important weeks of all of human history. Mark begins his narrative of the Passion in Bethany with an anointing. It was an extravagant act of love that symbolized that Christ's death was near. We find the story in Mark 14, verses 1 to 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, if not, it will be on the screen and you can just follow along. It says, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. He rebuked her harsh. They rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Uh, why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will have you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. 
she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's just pause for a moment and pray. God, we thank you for your word. It is food for our soul. It is nourishment, God. It teaches us. It helps us. It helps us to grow and to change. So, Lord, today as we look into your word, I ask that you would open our hearts to hear what you would have to say to us, God. Help me as I present it, God. I pray that you would give me the right words to say. God, I just thank you for what you're going to do today um, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. From this passage, we learn that the religious leaders, they want to arrest Jesus and kill him, but they're afraid of the crowds. There were over two million people in Jerusalem for the feast. Most of them were pilgrims from outside of the city. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and they know that they can't just march up to him and arrest him in the middle of the celebrations, or they may cause a riot. So they have to be very careful how they proceed. They need to be very secretive about it. So they plan to arrest Jesus after the feast. But as it turns out, Judas is going to give them the perfect opportunity. And so they will eventually arrest Jesus during the feast, just as, as Jesus had foretold. Uh, it's in this setting that it all takes place in the next two chapters. Jesus predicts the time of his death, and he begins his walk to the cross. And it's in the midst of this setting that Mark shares with us about a woman who does a beautiful thing for Jesus. And I believe this story can teach us some very important lessons that can help us on the way to victory in our own lives. And the first thing we learn from this text is that the way to victory requires sacrifice. There was these two young brothers. They were alone in the kitchen, and before them on the table was a huge bowl of eggs. The older one said, I'll give you a dollar if you let me break three eggs on your head. Do you promise, asked the younger brother. I promise, said the older brother, with all of my heart. So with the agreement made, he broke one egg on his brother's head. Then he broke another egg on the brother's head. Standing stiff for fear that the gooey mess would get all over him, the boy asked, when is the third egg coming? It's not, replied the brother. If I do that, it's going to cost me a dollar. <laughs> like that older brother, we want to get what we want, but we don't want to pay the cost. But in order for us to have victory in our lives, it will cost us something. It will require a sacrifice on our part. This lady, she gave what was probably her most prized possession. It was an act of sacrificial cost. This woman would have had to save a really long time to buy that perfume that she poured on Jesus. It was probably the most precious thing she owned. Perhaps this was a family inheritance, or some might speculate that it could have been part of her dowry for her wedding day. Others say it might well have been her life savings, her pension plan, so to speak. Verse 3 says that she brought an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and that she broke the jar and the, per and the perfume poured on Jesus' head. You know, I remember picking up a bottle of perfume in a store once, and I looked at the price, 
And I was like, wow, it was $350. I put it back pretty quick. I thought, wow, that's a lot of money for a bottle of perfume. That's so expensive. But verse 5 says that the value of the perfume that this woman poured on Jesus was equal to more than a year's wages. Now, I want you to just imagine for a moment, if you can, um, that your boss gave you a bonus equal to a year's wages. Just think about that. How much would that be? What would you do with it? Would you pay some bills? Would you give some away? Maybe you'd buy a new car or invest in stocks and bonds. Would you do some renovation in your house? Or would you pour it at the feet of Jesus? Would you invest it all in the kingdom of God? Now, seriously, if you think about that, you can begin to understand the extravagance of this woman's deed. No wonder Jesus said it would be talked about for centuries. What she did was a true sacrifice. And Jesus responds to her deeds with the words, She has done a beautiful thing to me. And it is indeed a beautiful thing when we do the, give our best and we give our all to Jesus. Uh, one thing we can see from this story is the contrast between extravagant love and cheap love. <clears throat> cheap love looks for excuses. It asks, how much do I have to give? But extravagant love asks, how much do I have to give? Cheap love keeps us in our comfort zones. Extravagant love costs. It's sacrificial. It's like the old story that's told of the pig and the hen. They're walking down the road when they see a sign on a cafe that read, bacon and eggs for breakfast. The pig turns to the hen and says, it's all right for you because for you it's an offering, but for me it's a sacrifice. (laughs) Extravagant love requires sacrifice, and it's more concerned with blessing the Lord than getting a blessing from the Lord. This woman had extravagant love for Jesus. She gave what she had, all that she had, the best that she had. And I think people who do that inspire us to do better as well. So what's your best? What valuable talent or gift or possession sits even today on the shelf of your life? Well, you, like that woman, pour it out at the feet of the master. There's a legend about an ancient village in Spain. The villagers learned that the king would pay a visit. In a thousand years, a king had never come to visit, so excitement grew. We must throw a big celebration, and the villagers all agreed. But this was a very poor village, and there weren't many resources. But someone came up with a classic idea. Since many of the villagers made their own wines, the idea was for everyone in the village to bring a large cup of their choice wine to the town square. We'll pour it into a large vat and offer it to the king for his pleasure. When the king draws the wine to drink, it will be the very best that he's ever tasted. The day before the king's arrival, hundreds of people lined up to make their offering to the honored guests. They climbed a small stairway and poured their gift through a small opening at the top. Finally, the vat was full. The king arrived and was escorted to the square. He was given a silver cup and told to draw some wine, which represented the best that the villagers had. He placed the cup under the spout and he turned the handle and then drank the wine. But it was nothing more than water. 
You see, every villager reasoned, I'll withhold my best wine and substitute water. With so many cups of wine in the vat, the king will never, ever know. But the problem was, everyone thought the same thing, and the king was greatly dishonored. Someone once said, there are no victories at discount prices. I want to encourage each one of us. Let's choose to honor our great King Jesus by giving him our very best, withholding nothing, giving him our all. And I believe in doing so, we will find more victory in our lives. The second thing that we learn from this story is that the way to victory requires humility. Gregory Jones, a professor of theology at Duke Divinity School, tells a story of how he was asked to preach at this large Episcopal church many years ago. He was to preach on Mark 14, 1-9, our very text for today. The church administrator asked him for the title of his message, and he sent it to her. It was called, His Extravagant Holiness. So he sat ready to preach but before, before the assembled congregation that Sunday. And he opened up the bulletin and looked through the order of worship, and he saw to his horror this note. We are grateful to have our guest speaker this morning, his extravagant holiness, the Reverend Dr. Gregory Jones. <laughs> See, the way to victory is not about honoring ourselves. It's about humbly honoring Christ. The Bible says God resists the poor but gives grace to the humble. And this lady, what she did, showed deep humility. Unlike what people think, humility is not the same as feeling bad about yourself or having low self-esteem. A famous way of describing humility is it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And as a follower of Christ, we have to humble ourselves and acknowledge our poverty in spirit without the Lord. We need to recognize that the strength for our conquering and our victory is drawn continually from Jesus. It's like the story of the little girl who said that when the devil came knocking with a temptation, she just sent Jesus to the door. She understood that in her own strength, she could never have victory over temptation. It was only through Christ that she could overcome. God, he looks for humility in the hearts of his people. And the results of being humble are ones that I think all of us should strive to attain. Jesus, he was the greatest example of humility to have ever lived. He was perfect. He was God in the flesh, and yet he came to earth to be a servant to others. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, he was lowly and humble. He's described as being humble in many verses throughout Scripture. And he gives us the perfect example of humility that we should aspire to in Philippians 2, 3 to 8. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing <clears throat> by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, 
even death on the cross. See, the way to victory requires humility. We have to humble ourselves and recognize our great need for God. Another thing that we learn from this story is that on the way to victory, you can expect opposition. A post office worker at the main sorting office found an on-stamp, poorly written envelope addressed to God. He opened it and discovered that it was from an elderly lady distressed because her savings, $200, had been stolen. She, was, she would be cold and hungry this Christmas. So he organized the postal workers who dug deep, and they came up with $180 to donate. They got it to her in special courier that very morning. A week later, that same postal worker recognized the same handwriting on another envelope. He opened it, and it said, Dear God, thank you for the $180 for Christmas, which would have uh, been so bleak otherwise. P.S. It was $20 short, but that probably was those thieving workers at the post office. <laughs> when you do a beautiful act for someone, don't be surprised when you're criticized. <laughs> Verse 4 to 5 says that the people began to criticize this lady harshly for her beautiful act. It says some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. And when we do um, things for God, we may be criticized. And we all know how painful it is when someone comes up to you and says, can I be perfectly honest with you? Or I don't want to be critical, but... I don't like it when people say that. <laughs> there are a few things in life's journey that are as painful and as paralyzing as facing the sting of criticism. We find the words of criticism go deeply because our hearts take it personally. Even the very threat of criticism has kept many people from living life to their fullest potential. I like what Aristotle said. He said, criticism is something you can avoid easily by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. However, anything that's worth accomplishing for God will come with its fair share of criticism. When you study the lives of people who undertook great tasks for God, you quickly discover that they wore more mud than metals. I was listening to the, this one pastor and, uh, about what he was saying about criticism. And he said, you know, I've been criticized all my ministry. I've been criticized for preaching too long, preaching too short, being too spiritual, not being spiritual enough, not visiting when I should, visiting when I shouldn't have, taking too hard a stand on an issue, not taking a hard enough stand on an issue, being too solemn or kidding around too much, and on and on and on I could go. You see, when we do things for the Lord, we can expect opposition and expect criticism. And sadly, we can expect it from those people who should know better. But to avoid criticism, simply do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. But if you do do something for the Lord, don't be surprised when you are criticized, because sadly, it seems to be part of the package. Now, the psalmist knew what criticism could do to a person and its piercing power when he said in Psalm 64, verse 2, Hide me from the wicked who wet their tongues like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows full of bitter words. We all know we can't hide from criticism. It's a fact of life. 
So the question isn't, will I be criticized, but rather, how can I handle criticism constructively? And the way we handle criticism, I believe, is a clue to where we are spiritually. The way in which we hear people tells a great deal about our spiritual maturity. Like that woman, we must not allow critics to discourage us for doing great and beautiful things for the Lord. Sir Christopher Wren rebuilt St. Paul's Cathedral in London and much of the town after the Great Fire in 1666. When he submitted his drawings to rebuild the town hall, one of the politicians stated that he thought Wren should add extra pillars to support the roof. Wren, the greatest architect in the region, argued that his designs were adequate to support the roof. However, the politician took his argument to the people and they decided, yes, that there needed to be extra columns added to support the roof. Many years later, after the politician and Wren were both dead, repairs and cleanings were being done to the hall. Much to the workers' surprise, they discovered that invisible from the floor below, the extra columns that Wren had put in were two inches short of touching the roof. You see, he knew he was right despite what all the critics said, and he refused to allow them to shake his confidence in what he knew he was supposed to do and what he knew was right. And when we do beautiful things for God, there are many people around us who may criticize us, but let's continue to do beautiful things for the God anyways and not get discouraged. There was only one perfect man who walked the face of the earth. They not only criticized him, they crucified him. And you know, you will encounter critics on your way to victory, but don't let the critics get to you. Another thing that we can learn from this passage is that the way to victory will point others to Jesus. We see in verse 8 that Jesus mentioned that the perfume was poured on his body beforehand to prepare for his burial. All she wanted to do was bless the Lord, but what she did pointed to Christ's coming sacrifice. Every time we do something to bless the name of our Lord, we're doing something beautiful. Every time we do something to point a person or people to the cross of our Lord Jesus, we're doing something beautiful. And when I was a young girl, an amazing woman named Jane Wheaton, she led me to the Lord. I'll never forget that day. She was my CA's leader. That's what we called it back then. And she told me of how Jesus died on the cross so that I could be forgiven. And I gave my heart to the Lord that night. Jane influenced my life so much that I gave Leah, my daughter, the middle name Jane after her. Two of my granddaughters also have the middle name Jane because of her. And Jane passed away this week. I will miss her very much, but I will always be grateful for the beautiful thing that she did for me. I want you to think about this morning the time when someone showed you the way to the cross. I know that your life will never be the same again thanks to God's saving grace in your life. That person, too, did a beautiful thing. And when we do beautiful things for God, it will point someone to the cross. And that could be any number of things. It could be as simple as hosting in our online service or praying for someone. 
It could be being a kids ministry worker or a parking lot attendant. It could be serving as an usher or a greeter or serving in our media or worship team. It could be even when you're kind to a neighbor or when you call a senior to check on them and see how they're doing. It could be as simple as saying a kind word to a child or anything else that's done for the love of Jesus will glorify God and point people to the cross. In February 1989, the New York Times reported a discovery near the Dead Sea in Israel, a flask of ointment dating back to the times of Jesus. It was wrapped in, in a palm leaves and buried in a pit three feet deep inside a cave. The flask was full of a very rare and very valuable ointment. Who owned the flask? When and why it was buried? We'll never know. But I know one person who owned a flask of ointment. She didn't wrap it in palm leaves and hide it in a cave. She broke that flask and poured the perfume on Jesus and filled the room with the fragrance of her love. Suppose she had hesitated, debated, or stopped. Suppose she feared the smirks of the crowd or the criticism of the skeptic. Suppose she had said, oh, this is silliness. It's just a passing mood she would have missed out on the victory. And that leads me to my final point. The way to victory leads to reward. In verse 9, we read, The Lord said, Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What an amazing testimony to leave behind. And sure enough, on the hundreds of occasions that this text has been preached from, this lady's beautiful act has not been forgotten. Well, I believe that God blesses our actions often in this lifetime. Even if nothing significant happens on this earth, our reward is assured in heaven because he's not going to forget the beautiful things we do to glorify him. And the greatest reward we'll ever receive is what that day when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So keep doing beautiful acts for God. Show your love for Jesus. Make that your life's priority. And allow the presence of God to guide your life and your motivations, not your human desire. I once read that when missionary John Payton was buried in the area where he selflessly ministered for the Lord with large numbers of people turning to Christ, these words appeared apparently were engraved on his tombstone here lies john payton when he arrived there were no christians only heathens when he left there were no heathens only christians that's what he was remembered for what will you be remembered for you know this past couple of years we've lost quite a few family and friends here at warden and it's really made me think more than ever what will be said of me? What will be said of you when our turn comes? This woman's example of extravagant love should move us to devote ourselves even more and more to the Lord. So is there something precious, something personal, something important that you can lay at the feet of Jesus? What does the song say? We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. 
In closing, I just want to challenge you to do at least one beautiful thing for God this Easter season. What will that mean? Well, it means it's going to cost you something. It will flow from a heart of humility. You will handle any criticism that comes for doing it gracefully. And it will point people to Jesus' sacrifice. And your act will not be forgotten by the master or by others. So I want you to take a moment today or even during this week and ask God, is there something that you can do to honor Christ like this woman did? And if he brings something to your mind, ask him for the courage and the determination to do it, no matter the cost. Now, maybe you're listening today and you do not know Jesus as your personal Savior. I want, will you allow me to point you to the cross? It's the place that Jesus suffered and died. He took the penalty for your sin and mine so that we could be forgiven and stand in right relationship with God. It is a free gift of salvation. And my prayer is that if you have not done that, that you will accept this free gift today. And if you do that, please let us know so that we can rejoice with you and journey with you and help you along your way. In a few moments, we're going to be sharing in a time of communion together. And as we do, I just want to encourage you to focus on the victory that was won for us on the cross. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you died for us so that we could have victory in our lives. God, help us to humbly come to you and ask for the help that we need for the situations and the circumstances in our life. There are so many people, I believe, even here today and listening online that need to win victory over things that are happening, victory over fear and anxiety, victory over circumstances that they have, seem to have no control over. God, victory over their finances, victory over their health, God. And I just pray that today you would just minister to each one of us in, in a special and a unique way in the way that we need it the most, God. We cry out to you and ask that you would help us to love you with an extravagant love, God, that we would be inspired and motivated to do these beautiful things for you, God. As we look to forward to Easter and celebrating what you have done for us, how you died on the cross and how you rose again to give us victory. Help us to recommit once again our lives to you and to your purposes and, and to how you would have us live, God. Help us to be an influence to those around us. Help us to love, God, in the way that you would love us. I just thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.